0: You're listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Welcome to the NASM CPT Podcast. My name is Rick Ritchie, and I'm here today wearing glasses. I have a an internal hordeolum, which is a fancy word for sty, and I've never had anything like this before. I, I was thinking about canceling. But then I thought my guest today had to miss a session recently and reschedule. And I thought, man, if I reschedule on him, there's no way I'm going to get him back. So uh, here I am braving the eyeball that is swollen up to, uh, to MMA defeat <laughs> proportions uh, in order to be back on the show. I'm happy to be here with my guest today, Matt Jordan. Matt, thanks for being on the show, dude. Thank you.
1: Uh, yeah, it's great to be here. I uh, appreciate the opportunity. And uh, it doesn't look too bad. It, I Thank mean it you. looks like you might have, you know, had a had a bar bar room brawl on the weekend. Yeah. You know, that, that's, <laughs> that's all right. right.
0: That's right. There was a, I, I'm telling you it's like a there's a sad story, but I only cried on half of my face. So it's uh it's not it's not too bad right now, but I've I've taken some inseds to get the swelling down to try to look reasonable, but I'm telling you I've been I've been putting this this whole story on on my Instagram. I've been doing stories and a couple of posts, and I had no idea what it was, so I put it out there for anybody who wants to to yeah. chime in. And to, you know, to the man with a hammer, everything's a nail. So if they've had something, that's what I have, and they just kind of yeah. go through and tell me oh, it's this, it's this, it's this. Um, oh, I, I got to be honest, it's it's probably a little bit of all of it, and they're all kind of right, but. Uh, sure. it's been fun. And, and of course, I like when people put the caveats on there, like, listen, this is not a diagnosis. And I went, you know what? This is Instagram, so don't worry. <laughs> I will never, yeah. <laughs> we'll never account. Yeah, 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 exactly. Right. This is not uh, medical advice. Uh, yeah. No, no medical advice taken. As a matter of fact, yeah. it's funny because I have a I have a client that's an ER doctor, and I reached out to him to ask him questions. And he asked so many questions. I mean, let's go down the list of what it could be. And then at the end of it, he said, I don't know, you should go see a doctor. So (laughs) the the difference between the Instagram crowd and the physicians is pretty vast. And uh, a lot of questions need to be asked. But with that being said, a lot of questions need to be asked of you. So... We're going to get into this. Today, we're going to talk about strength and conditioning. But I want you to introduce yourself for for our um, our listeners here. Tell us a little bit about who you are, your education, your background, your companies, and we will then dive in.
1: Yep. Yeah, no. Uh, so yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Matt Jordan, and I. Uh always call myself a strength coach first. I I, uh, worked out of our Olympic training center in Canada called the Canadian Sport Institute Calgary. It's one of four Olympic training centers. Uh, I moved here. I was super lucky. I met a guy named Charles Polican, who maybe your listeners may have heard of. Charles passed away a couple of years ago, but Charles was my strength coach when I was an athlete and had no idea that you could become a strength coach as a career. I always loved the weight room and Uh, Yeah, long story short is I uh, did a master's in uh, muscle physiology. Um, You know, my my work took me through five Olympic cycles with the Canadian Olympic teams, going to the Olympics and working with athletes and getting them on the podium healthy and safe. Um, Went back to do a PhD in medical science, um, kind of, I would say, midway through my career. So sort of an odd time to go back because I was already kind of well-established professionally, but I... I felt I needed more and, and the focus of my PhD was primarily around how do we develop better testing methodologies and training methodologies for athletes who've had ACL injury and so I spent, um, you know, uh, published on that and present a lot on that and, and where I land today is I, I head up sports science at our at our Olympic Training Center. I'm an adjunct professor at the university so I've got a research program with grad students and I'm really proud of it. We, you know, we take. I love mentorship. I love. I love working with coaches, uh, especially coaches who want to become more scientific. That's how I've always seen myself as a coach who wanted to be more scientific. Um, and so we've got a great program. We mentor strength coaches. We give them an opportunity to get a graduate degree, a, a thesis-based graduate degree. Um, And we have a really cool research program where we're doing all kinds of cool stuff in our strength and power lab, uh, developing really, really uh, good testing methodologies and trying to innovate to help athletes out. And uh, aside from that, as I've got my online consulting business at uh, JordanStrength.com, I provide online education programs for coaches and, you know, consulting with professional teams and military groups and all kinds of fun stuff, including NASM. Did a little bit of work with you guys last year and I
0: was truly,
1: truly impressed. So it's, uh, it's cool. Uh, cool to be here today.
0: Uh thanks a lot man I appreciate that. So you you've jumped into a, a a lot of things going on. I know the the research has probably hit a hard stop recently as a the with the covid kind of disrupting schedules and student sessions and things like that. So I hope your your research is able to pick back up and take off soon. Uh, I yeah, have a couple doing questions. Okay there. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead oh, yeah. you are. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, brilliant, yeah, man. Yeah. Congrats. We're rolling, so, yeah. Congrats. All right. So I have a couple of questions. Everybody likes to put these two words together, strength and conditioning. Maybe you could let us know what they are and what are the differences between the two of them so that when it's being said, we know what we're talking about.
1: Oh yeah. No, isn't that just the yeah, I've had so many um so many debates with my friends and colleagues over the fact that we call ourselves strength and conditioning coaches. And some people, that's a badge of honor. Other people would prefer to call themselves performance coaches or performance Mm -hmm. specialists. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't, um, I don't, uh, I don't necessarily, uh, like to put my, 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 myself into a box nor, nor would I like to put it sort of rigidly defined. But I think at the end of the day, we are, you know, especially working with elite athletes, we are performance oriented. And so if you think about the expression of muscle power, from short-term maximal expression of muscle power like you know think about a weightlifter to the sustained power of let's say a track cyclist or a cross-country skier or whatever you you think of at that other end of the continuum mm-hmm. i always say that my job and and, and our job is to is to um, um, run that gamut and and uh you know in, in terms of being able to optimize how athletes uh, express themselves on the field of play and so it's i know that's a bit of a philosophical answer but it's kind of what it's about right you're unlocking an athlete's potential and right. even though we call it strength and conditioning it's a continuum of the expression of, of 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 force and power across that continuum and you're you know you're playing this role of helping them unlock their potential and every athlete is just a little bit different in terms of how they accomplish the goal of maximal you know that, that expression of the true peak of pinnacle of performance um, so i think that's what i would say it's a, a puzzle kind of like sherlock holmes Coming in, trying to figure out the clues and and putting it all together into to the you know I always say the the perfect program to to help that athlete uh,
0: achieve their results. Uh, that that's good because I do want to get into the the Sherlock Holmes portion of this. I want to I want to find out you know pick your brain about uh, what you know and how you get into doing what you do. But I also want to point out a few things. One is that when we're putting together programs for people, especially athletes. We have to look at what it is that that we need to get out of it. And so many times we think, all right, well, uh, what is your the, the fastest you can run? Right. What is the most you can lift? What is the most? And when you look at it, there's a there's a continuum of requirements like your top end speed. Let's say that you could hit 25 miles an hour. Great, but very few sports are going to require that you ever get to that top end speed. And if we're looking at things like soccer or football or baseball, the chances of hitting that 25 miles an hour before the play's over is really low. So how what, what's your acceleration speed, right? So how fast do you get fast? What's your deceleration speed? How fast can you stop? pivot, change directions. There's so many things. And then we add the conditioning to it just because you're super strong or you can produce this force. Does that mean that you have the metabolic conditioning to be able to do it again for the next play and the next totally. play and the next play. So yeah. when I, when I look at, at strength, strength is a continuum as well. There's endurance strength. There's uh, max strength. There's speed strength. And there's endurance to your max strength. There's endurance to your power. So there's a, there are a lot of layers to it. And then your conditioning is your ability to, to to repeat hit play again with the amount of rest that you're given. And, of course, if you're given prolonged amounts of rest in performance, then you can have that during your, your training. But, you know, MMA and you're going three to five-minute rounds um, – that's that's a lot of conditioning and your strength can be really high and drop off quick but if your conditioning's not up then then you're not going to be able to make it very far
1: yeah and there's and there's a cost there's a cost of there's a there's a cost of doing business there too because you know mm-hmm. as with any sort of scenario with with training is that you know, to invest energy into improving a particular capacity or a particular ability. And I, I like to define capacities as, you know, like strength, rate of force development You mentioned speed, strength, which is sort of in that umbrella of, of rate of force development. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of, you know, to improve an athlete's capacity, um, the reality is it takes time. And so you always have to balance out, you know, is this is this worth the investment? And, you know, having worked with, um, you know, uh, lots and lots of Olympians and in, in, in sports of all different types, you know, including uh, professional athletes as well that, you know, are, are in a broad range of sports, What you know is that there's not one way to solve a problem, right? Uh, an athletic problem. And there's multiple paths to, to, to getting, to getting success. And, and I always sort of realize that the best coaches, what they do is they put the, the sport performance first as the pinnacle. And their role as you know let's say developing strength or power or whatever whatever uh, capacity it is that we're talking about and um, their their role is subservient to the master which is performance and I steal that quote from my great friend Jeremy Shepard, who's a, who's a well-known guy in the space of strength and conditioning research but you know we are servants to the purpose which is performance and and we are we are here to serve that and and so we have to be really um, calculated and we have to be very specific about what we do. To, uh, to improve an athlete's capacities and abilities for the goal of making them a better athlete. And there's nothing more challenging than a coach who confuses that they're, you know, you ask them, they say, Oh, my, my, what's your purpose? My purpose is to get them strong. So that's not, that's no one's purpose. Unless you're a weightlifter or a powerlifter, your purpose right. could very yeah. well be to make them strong. But, you know, our our purpose is to serve the competitive performance and and we have to be very specific and, and calculated about how we go about that. So, love that. yeah, it's a good point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well said. How many athletes have you ever worked with that think that they go faster than everybody else?
1: Well, I mean, I think, I think where, where we, uh, where we saw that sort of, um, a bit of a spiral happen there, you know, certainly was, and it still exists today, but this notion of, you know, foot speed and quickness, you know, confusing the idea of fast feed. And, you know, you often see that in the circles, like my, my older son plays hockey and often here you know parents watch fast skaters and it looks like their feet are moving really quickly and they'll say to themselves well you know i need my kids to have faster foot speed um but i think i think the the difference between speed and foot speed and and true you know the capacity to put force into the ground to move your center of mass um you know there's a there's a there's a lot to it and and it's and it's uh i always defer i gotta Uh, some really good friends that work in in that domain with Olympic level sprinters. And, and, and I'll tell you this much is that, um, yeah, you, you have a, you have a lot of confusion around what speed is, what it means, how to improve it. And, and, um, it it takes, uh, it takes, uh, again, a lot of skill as a coach to figure that out, figure out the puzzle.
0: Yeah, without a doubt. Now I know from your background and your history, we talk about, um, Kind of this taking this moment because you did your 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 focus was on ACL um, return to play after ACL injury, right?
1: Yeah. So yeah.
0: you mentioned even on your website there's a bridge, and you want to bridge that gap between rehabilitation and sport performance. Mm-hmm. What does that mean, and why is that so important?
1: I mean, you know, I, I can, I can relay this story back to being a strength coach. You know, my, my first real gig uh, as a strength coach was working with our Alpine ski team. And, and I can remember this athlete that she suffered an ACL injury and I was a big part of her rehab and uh, you know, got her back. And, and you know, what did I, what did I really measure? What did I really test? What process did I use to account for my confirmation bias to ensure that this athlete was as prepared as she could be to get back onto, you know, onto the snow. In this case, it's a very high-risk sport, and you know, the answer to that question was I didn't. I, I I knew I should be doing stuff, right? But as a coach, I was not equipped with the skills of a scientist to be able to use uh, use a data-driven decision-making process. I wasn't equipped with that in those days to be able to to uh, complement all my coaching skill and. I can remember getting the call about uh, she was probably back on snow about maybe eight months or so, and I remember getting the call saying, "Hey, um, she just suffered a, a contralateral knee injury. She's just blowing out her other knee." And I remember feeling a tremendous amount of, of burden and and uh, you know, I guess, responsibility for being like, "Did I really? Did I really check my boxes there?" And that mm-hmm. that motive, that motivation of you know, of uh, you know, making sure that I am doing right by my athletes. Um, especially in those environments requires us to to go beyond our guts on beyond our eye. And, you know, you talk to so many coaches and trainers who just really are using their eye and their, their instincts to guide processes. And I'm not, not discounting that. I think there's a lot of times where we need to nurture our instincts, uh, but ultimately um, yeah, I, I, I lived it firsthand. And so when I got back into uh, working with the Alpine ski team, I had found um, a setup where we used uh, two force plates. So we had a force plate underneath each foot, and we can actually measure the contribution of the left leg and the right leg towards that, the, the, the mm-hmm. propulsive and braking uh, capacities of an athlete, let's say doing a jump, and we could compare to see what the asymmetries look like. I, I sort of developed uh, by an organic um, process of, of constantly being curious and wanting to, you know, be more objective in what I was doing. I, I developed, a way of implementing this. And, and honestly, uh, to that point, you know, it it became, you know, that interface of how does a coach use science to drive decision-making? And I'm not talking here about coming into the weight room and doing studies. I'm talking about as a coach stealing from science to be able to account for, um, our confirmation bias, but to be able to generate some new knowledge for ourselves, and and our processes around helping athletes, and um, you know, there's nowhere that that matters more than when you're helping people come back after injury, especially when they've got to go back to a high risk environment. Um, and um, yeah, it's it's an it's a it's a it's a dance, right? Because you can't, you know, it, it can't all come down to the numbers and spreadsheets because you're not coaching a spreadsheet; you're coaching a real live person on the other side, right? No, it's not an, it's not just numbers, right? But on the other hand, what we know is that you can't just Go with your gut and go with your feel because that leads us astray. And um, you know we need to have ways that we can embrace it. And and I really try to work with coaches on that. It's not easy, uh, but it's actually—I'll be honest with you—it's probably it's the most fruitful and exciting part of my job, and it has been over my career where I've been using science. Uh, but it's been stumbling upon things that you're like, wow! I almost feel like I made a discovery here because I've yeah. measured something and I can actually you know, bring that in and account for things. And it's, it's truly, um, it's truly a a, a fun way to program as a coach makes it so much more exciting when you're seeing things change. And you can actually measure that stuff and and blend it with your, your, your coach's gut, uh, coach's feel, coach's eye, coach's instinct, which are also critical pieces of the puzzle.
0: There are a couple of things that you mentioned. One is confirmation bias. And you've mentioned that a couple of times. I'd like for you to just share with uh, with our people, what is confirmation bias and how might we be biased and 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 seeking the answers that feed those biases uh, in our own programming? And uh, then I have another question about those asymmetries in the force plate. So that I just want to ask about, but let's yeah, confirmation yeah. bias first.
1: Sure. I mean, you know, I think I think confirmation bias is just one type of bias that all humans are prone to. Right. And and it's mm-hmm. the idea that we tend to um, we tend to see the things that fit with our beliefs and we tend to discount the stuff that doesn't. So if there's someone presenting me with a series of facts, but it doesn't fit with what I care about, I'll have a tendency to kind of overlook that and to into into and to, and to, and to, and to, and to you know focus on the things that 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 fit what i want uh, to have happen and you know i'll just give you an example around you know athletes with an acl injury like you know you 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 work with them you spend months with them um, you know uh, it's a long rehabilitation process 9 10 11 12 months and at some point in time you become personally invested as a practitioner in this person's journey and you want nothing more than to see this athlete get back to the things that they love to do. And at that juncture where we start to entertain the idea of them getting back to sport, let's say it's nine months, um, a lot of times you start to focus on the, the, the feeling of wanting to give them um, positive news. Like, hey, can, you know, great job. You look good. You feel good. You know, everyone's, everyone's got this you know, optimism and you tend to want to, um, to, to encourage them. To progress along this continuum back to a high risk environment. And, and I'll just give you a, a couple of examples of the number of athletes at that juncture that if they haven't been sort of tracked and, and monitored in a, in a really systematic way, you can end up with an athlete that is at nine months post-surgery that actually looks like they're four months post-surgery. And and that's and that's and and that's using objective measures. But yet the people working with them will overlook that to say, you know, I think you're ready because we believe in you and we believe in this, you know, we, we we want to give you this, this, we want to confirm our bias that all this hard work was worth it and you're ready to rock when in fact they're not. So that is an example of confirmation bias. Another type of bias that I think is really prevalent for us too is this uh, idea of kind of like a recency or a recall bias. Like you tend to remember things that are a little bit closer in time, right? So I always say if you are a, uh, if you're a, uh, uh, a coach who who let's say goes and gets a certification on the weekend that let's say the course is on looking at the foot the next day when you show up on monday it looks like everybody's got a foot problem you know it kind of goes back to your point about the eye right like yeah yeah you 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 fit everything into the context of what you remembered most recently and and, and that's to the exclusion of stuff that you might have done in the past that was really good maybe it was that course on Lumbo pelvic stability, and you kind of block that out to focus on the foot, but you missed all the stuff around the the spine and the pelvis. I guess my point is, is that we're all human; we all are prone to this stuff. and And I'll tell you, the best way to to kind of mitigate that is to be a curious coach and to always make sure that you're trying to bring the science behind the coaching, and that's a way to account for these things. I'm not saying that that, that is the the you know 100% uh, a fix to all issues, because scientists also have confirmation bias. But at the end of the day, it's um. It's one way to become a little bit more data driven is a way that we can sort of account for some of these things. And the dual force plate system was one way that that I've been uh, you know, integrating that into what we do at our training center to help athletes and to help drive our conversations around around athlete readiness.
0: So a question about the force plate, and then I want to get into um, how do we measure, monitor and improve athletic performance, especially for uh, the personal trainers that are part of our NASM family. But the force plate, uh, I'm just curious what it is that you're reading out of it. And um, Mm. if there's if there's an issue on one side versus the other, you would assume that. Whichever side may have the issue, you're going to put more force into the other side. Are you trying to read maybe a protective mechanism? Are you trying to read strength output? What are you What are you reading? And then how are you interpreting that?
1: uh yeah i mean f- fantastic question and and uh certainly it's one that i think um you know for anybody who's listening and who wants to learn more about this i think that you know uh, some of the stuff that i'll i provide through my website are courses around this because i think it is a it's an emerging area but Let's just let's just keep it really simple. Number one, I stumbled on this, by the way. It wasn't by it wasn't by design that I started using two force plates. It was the fact that we had zero budget at our Olympic Training Center in Canada for new equipment compared to my my friends around the world, especially my American friends. And I'd been down at the USOC and I'd I'd seen this equipment that a guy named Bill Sands was using there, and he had these little force plates that cost five hundred bucks a pop. And I was like, five hundred bucks, I can afford, can I can afford. That. 500 bucks. But the problem is these things were super small. They were about a foot by a foot, maybe a little bigger. Um, And I was like, you know, there's no way I'm going to get a a 200 pound or a 220 pound bobsled or jumping on this little plate. I'm going to need probably two of them um, to be Mm -hmm. able to like actually use. So I was like, I got to get it two. but Hey, thousand bucks, I can afford that. And so we got the plates and um, I was like, this is amazing as a coach. I'm, you know, working with athletes. A lot of them were injured. And I was like, this is pretty cool. I can actually, like, I would say it's like taking an x-ray or an MRI to your movement, right? Like what we care about as coaches is how do you put force in the ground to move yourself around the world, right? Like how do you put force in the ground to move yourself on the field, on the snow, mm-hmm. on the ice, you know, and and that's what's happening. And, and, and with this setup, I was like, oh, this is really cool. I am taking an MRI to your movement and I'm actually measuring the contribution uh, from the left side and the right side in terms of the forces that the system is generating, the person, as they push into the ground to either break or or, or pro- propel themselves off the ground or to land. And, um, you know, it was very interesting that if someone had a, a left side injury, that in a lot of cases, you would see that that would be reflected in the shape and also the asymmetries that you would visualize in the curve. And I was like, this is great. I got a tool now. Like I've got a yeah. I've got something that's actually really bringing meaning and and you know for all of your trainers out there who might be listening who understand the FMS, right? Or we understand mm-hmm. comparing the right side to the left side. This is a, a, a this is a way that we can use a data-driven approach and really almost make an XR, x-ray picture of what that looks like so you can start to see that's and cool. and quantify that 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 uh, that side of things. When you are using the plates, you can use them in all kinds of tasks. You can use them in isometric tasks, like let's say a mid-thigh pull. We've actually mounted one to a leg press. We've got a friend of ours who are welders and we they kind of welded out a, a single leg press for us that was cost us like 600 bucks. It wasn't a lot of money. We mounted a plate there so we could measure right and left forces. Um, you can measure it. We've, we've tested uh, Olympic caliber weightlifters on these plates doing, you know, you know, doing cleans. Um, and we we have as a part of our core test battery is a, a whole bunch of variations of jumping. So uh, yeah. counter movement, jumping, drop jumping, squat, jumping, single leg jumping, reactive hopping. And, um, you know, really what you're able to tease out from this uh, signal is you can tease out the eccentric movement phase. So the where the, where the phase where the athlete is putting the brakes on and we, we alluded to that yeah. before, you know, and, and the idea that you know, as you unload and you start dropping down towards the ground, there's a phase where you've got to put the brakes on. So you're basically reversing the fact that you're accelerating downwards. We can look at how they accelerate up and off the ground and we can look at how they land. And there's a direct connection between the force that you apply and the speed of movement. It's called the impulse momentum relationship. It's a going back to your high school physics classes. There's a relationship between the force that I apply and the speed that I hit. And so from there, we can do some analysis and we can break this down and we can actually look at these different phases of movement. And specifically, we can look at the right side and the left side. And what this allows us to do is become a little bit more surgical in our programming. And we can identify athletes who have large asymmetries that have asymmetries in specific phases of movement. And now our programming can be specific to what we're seeing in the signal. And this allows us to optimize that athlete beyond just we kind of a we talked about this at the beginning of the of the interview here is that. You know, our measuring stick is typically how much did you clean? How much did you bench? How much did you squat? How fast did you run? But we know there's more to those things than just the raw output of I power cleaned 140 kilos. There's how you did that. And this is what this uh, system allows us to do is we can start to measure and fine tune where the athletes got deficits. And then we can use our programming very specifically to address those problems. And you know, one simple way is looking at athletes who might have high asymmetry on 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 one particular side. So one particular side's at a deficit. We can identify that stuff. I'll tell you this much. A lot of times your eye will not pick these things up. And then yeah. uh, by by sort of targeting our training, we can actually improve those and we can get that athlete to a bandwidth that they've got greater capacity on that limited side. Uh, just opening up bandwidth for them to solve problems on the field of play. Because if my left limb is generating 20% less eccentric deceleration force than my right, that just means that on the field of the play, I'm going to have to uh, work to that limitation. If I bring that up side by side so that we've got more capacity in the left side, it just opens up the bandwidth for the athlete to have more solutions on the field of play. And certainly when we look at injuries like, you know, ACL tears, where, you know your ACL is a flimsy little ligament that can handle a couple thousand newtons of force before it it uh, it ruptures. Um, you know that an ACL is not meant to be a primary mechanical restraint for an NFL football player sprinting down a field. It's it's there as a secondary restraint. The muscles are the key restraint that provide protective stiffness for the joint. And so at the end of the day, we're we're actually getting into this and being able to fine tune and identify these problems and and then use the information in a systematic way and hopefully. Uh, uh, work towards optimizing how we work with athletes uh, to help help them perform better and maybe fend off a few injuries here and there.
0: I love that. Let's get into more about stuff like that. And this goes back to talking about how do we measure, how do we monitor, how do we improve athletic performance? So those are three things. What are some things that personal trainers, fitness professionals, and strength and conditioning um, uh, people that are, are working as performance coaches, how can they, what are some of these things that, that we can do to measure, to monitor and to improve athletic performance?
1: Yeah. Okay. I mean, listen, this, this is, uh, I love this. This is, this is my, one of my favorite topics. And, and I, I think that this is a, this is a really critical piece of the puzzle. Because where people get bogged down, and I've been there, you know, I don't, I don't want people listening to the call being like, oh, there goes the PhD researcher talking about how easy this work with data. I mean, I have been there, like your listeners, fumbling around with my Excel spreadsheet and all this, you know, just being like, this is a, this is costing me way too much energy. This is not worth my time. I've been there. I, I know what that's like. So number one is you've got to sort of realize your process. You're not you're not trying to go from like a deductive reasoning where we start with theory and hypothesis and collect data. You're, you got you to gotta imagine yourself like Sherlock Holmes, right? You know, you're coming up to the scene of the crime and you're, you want to know who killed the butcher and you're going to take out your magnifying glass and your fingerprint kit and your DNA kit and you're going to use these tools to help arrive at some sort of explanation for what you think might have explained the, the death of this butcher. In a very similar way, when you're working with an athlete or a client, you're trying to use your tools to arrive at what does this person need? And there's going to be some stuff that's going to be like, tell me what you think you need. And that's a, that's, Hey, let's be honest. That's, that's a really important question. But the tools that you're using are going to be those that allow you to be like, okay, here's what you think you need, but now let me do some sort of process assessment. Um, How am I going to evaluate this person to arrive at what they need? And that is the whole point about this is you're using a—it's a, a clue-gathering strategy to build out an explanation. And the cool thing about it is you arrive at a hunch, being like, you know what? I think this person's missing twenty percent eccentric deceleration capacity on that left limb. I think that's being driven by a hip mobility issue at the ankle joint, uh, lack of quadriceps strength, and let's just say poor lower limb motor control. I'm going to devise a program now that's going to address that. But now that you've got Uh, you've almost created your own little mini science experiment because you've used this information to drive your programming. And now you're going to implement a program. And now you've got this capacity over time to be able to say, I wonder if my program changed that stuff. And I'm going to tell you right now, that is so much fun. And I can have, I can give you examples where, you know, just to let you know, it's not all confirmation, you know, serving your own beliefs. I've written programs where you go through that process, the athlete comes back, you test them. You're like, that didn't work. They're not yeah. better. Yeah. And, and it's not that you're, um, you know, you're, 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 you're doing that to help understand as much as anything else. Right. So you, and, and you may have other cases where you're like, wow, I've really learned that in this particular case, I apply this and this works really well. So that's, that's number one about your process, right. Is you've got to think about it like Sherlock Holmes and you got to be in that mindset. Number two, and I know this is tough and I, and I, and I, and, I, and I've tried to simplify this. In the courses that I teach and when I talk to to, to personal trainers, you got to think about a dartboard, right? Your goal is to hit the bullseye and how many darts stick in that bullseye is how accurate your testing equipment is. It measures what it's supposed to measure. How clustered those darts are is, is the reliability, like how precise is the measurement. And you can have, you know, you can have really good precision with a test, but it's off the bullseye. Or you could have generally hits the bullseye, but it's not super close, right? It's not super accurate. And those are real limitations depending upon the environment that you're in. Because when I work with elite athletes, I might expect that from one day to the next, or a week to the next, or cycle to the next, we might see a percent or two of change. So if my system has noise that's 10 or 15%. But I'm looking for a signal that's a couple percent. I'm never going to see the signal in this noise. So I have to understand a little bit about how to tighten things up so I can see the stuff that I really want to see. And that would be number two is you've got to make sure that when you use tests, if you're going to use a data driven decision making process, you got to kind of understand how to get your measurements as tight as possible. And it takes some practice, right? I, I've got some great grad students right now that one of my grad students is looking at how hip strength shapes how people land, because we deal a lot with like mm. snowboarders and freestyle skiers, right? And we need to understand that does, does hip strength contribute meaningfully to how those athletes land? And his first round of testing my grad student's name is Drew Lawson, great guy. Um, he he um, first round of testing, his noise was like, let's say 12%. So from one test to the next, 12% noise, that would mean that an athlete would have to improve more than 12% for him to say, Yeah, I think something happened here. Yeah. And we're like, Well, that's going to be kind of tough because I don't know any athlete who's making a 15% gain in hip abduction strength yeah. <laughs> over the long term, right? So he's been working on that and he's got his measurement error down to now it's like 4 to 6%. Okay. Now we're in a range. Yeah, but it took him some practice. He's like, Oh shit, I got a, I just, well, pardon me, I, I just okay. dropped a little S bomb there, but hey, we're all good, right? Um, but I got, you know, he got his measurement error down and now he understands how to be a little bit more you know, he understands what that's going to mean. So that's a huge, a huge piece. Um, and I would just finish off by saying is that, you know, there are tons of tools out there that can help you um, be able to work with the uh, work with dashboards and and like being able to take large amounts of information and kind of turn them into a beautiful picture. Like that's a, that's a real key thing when you're trying to use a data driven decision-making process, so you've got to be able to kind of like take, You know it can be intimidating like if i do a if i do a jump trial on our force plates i can have a spreadsheet that's got ten thousand rows of information and you might look at that and be like oh my gosh how am i going to deal with that but there's ways and and again i would say for anyone who wants to learn more about this um you can either buy turnkey solutions or you can learn to do it yourself final point and then i'll stop talking on this topic and 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 say that um uh, the, the, the clincher was always this, Hey, that's awesome, Matt. I love the dual force plate system. I see how this works. I see that you can measure asymmetries and it's, it's awesome, but I either don't have the money or I don't have the expertise to do it. And, um, I, I would just say that, uh, you may want to check out some of the wearable companies that are coming online these days. I work with a company in Vancouver, Vancouver, Canada called Plantiga. They put an IMU inside of an insole. And I actually have got one here cause I actually go for all my runs. I put this in my shoe. A really cool thing, Slip, slips into an insole, put it into your shoe, and they use uh, this IMU technology and they use machine learning. So kind of the way that Google recognizes a cat from a lion, that's what the sort of technology they use to be able to drive insights back on a dashboard. And all I can tell you is with this, I can have somebody do a two minute walk test. And after an ACL injury, um, the system can predict to within a couple, like a few weeks where that person's surgery has occurred. So Um, there's huge insights that can be driven from this. And all I got to say, it's like taking your FMS, which we're all familiar with, where you have people do overhead squats and you grade them and you're using your eye to kind of judge how they move. This is opening up the bandwidth for coaches and trainers to be able to have a data-driven decision-making process. That's easy to use, uh, easy to implement into a real world environment. You know, it doesn't cause you, you don't have to be a PhD scientist. You can actually, um, integrate this into your movement assessments and you can actually Move to that next level of of, of uh, embracing science in, in the day-to-day practice of identifying deficits to help your athletes get a little bit better.
0: Now, are you using these measures and monitors to drive your exercise selection? And are you using yes. that exercise selection? Are you using the the individual or the sport timeline, like the the preseason? season, post season, all of that stuff to drive your program? Or do you kind of have uh generally we're gonna stay in this phase for this long and move to this? How do you do your your exercise selection and your program of those selections over time?
1: Yeah, well I mean I think you know I think the the, the short answer to the question is I'm I'm basing my exercise selection and my loading parameters on my assessment process. So by using a combination of traditional movement assessments like we do with our coach's eye and and technologies like Plantiga where I can quantify that a bit better. Um, Using um, our force plate technology and some of our other uh, measures that we have available, I'm able to lock in on where the real big issues are. And that's the primary driver. Of the exercise selection and also um, the, the loading parameters, because that's going to kind of shape the shape the the, the direction that I'm going to head. Um, to just give a little bit of sense too, I think that as part of my intake process, I'm also um, I'm also using that athlete's experience as well to understand you know what's worked well for them in the past. You know, do they have mm-hmm. any? Um, are there any underlying contraindications for a particular movement? Having worked with Olympic athletes and let's say Speed skating and cross country skiing. I can tell you that some of the athletes love the weight room. Some of the athletes could care less. So sure. you know, investing all kinds of energy into teaching them Olympic lifts—it just wasn't, it just wasn't part. It wasn't worth the time. So I need to have you know ways that I could accomplish the training effect, but have the exercise that would be easy to learn, easy to implement. So there's all of this sort of analysis going in into my selection of exercise, um, and and some of it's fr- coming from the data that we're collecting, and some of it's coming from you know, how I interview athletes and how I track their progress. And I, I would say that more and more and more, um, moving away from the idea of a preset idea of what periodization should look like. Mm -hmm. So if you're still making gains on the program I gave you. And, you know, my instinct says, well, you know, every three weeks we change the program, but we're into week four or five and you're still improving. You know, I might actually stick there and say, Hey, let's like, let's keep it going. Right. Like, let's, Let's keep the exercises in there. They're working for us. And, and let's you know, make subtle shifts in the loading scheme so that we still uh, avoid the stagnation and the plateau. But let's maximize what we can get from this. Um, there's also, you, know, back to drivers of, of choosing exercises. There's also realities, you know, for example, anybody listening to this call, we all know, right? Like when do you really feel that delayed onset muscle soreness? It's typically after you've made a big switch in your exercise selection. So moving from, let's say, an emphasis that has, let's say, more, um, you know, back squatting and trap bar deadlifting to more split squatting, right? Like you're going to feel it in your adductors and you're going to feel it in, in your high hamstring. And, um, you know, certainly with athletes, we always have to be cognizant of the fact that when they get into their competitive season, we are serving the purpose. I go back to that, right? Our, my job is not to make them strong. My job is to serve the purpose, which is to help them perform. And very often what we'll see in those settings is that, you know, we'll stick with the same exercise selection for several months in a row uh, because we know that we need to maintain what's there, not necessarily try and provoke an adaptation. And so all of these things I think would come back to to that, to answering that question. And, And you did touch on the word monitoring and it would be something I would throw in there as well to my previous answer is that if you want to be able to track changes in your athletes, you've got to have a relatively high frequency of being able to collect information. And, and, you know, the more complicated testing gets and the more complicated that side of things become, the harder it is to implement. And so all I would say is you get to a regime where you're able to pinpoint on the things that you need for the sport or the athlete, you can get this information and ensure that um you know again back to the idea is like how do we drive that well we if you're making progress we're sticking with what we're doing and when we start to see changes in those trends that's when we typically will pivot onto um you know a new strategy to provoke the adaptation that we're looking for
0: i do appreciate it and i know one thing that you mentioned before you said the words you're not coaching a spreadsheet and getting information back from people because here's the thing yes. we can put down on paper what we believe to be the best program ever written, ever. And we can deliver that to that person. And there can be so many caveats within this person that, you know, the the program's great. The program for that person may not be great. And I remember I was working with um with an athlete. And at one point he was like, Look, man, I just can we do some bench presses? And I was like, Man, I mean, that's not really our program, but you seem like you're going to be heartbroken if we don't do some. And and it was like his second time asking. I was like, let's, let's bench press. Let's, let's bring joy to your gym life.
1: You gotta, you gotta be able to have buy-in. And, you know, I, 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 again, that's that intersection coach scientist, right? Is how do you create buy-in and you are not coaching a robot and -hmm. people need to have a little bit of ownership over what they're doing. And um I could not agree more that, you know, we need to give some, you know, bandwidth, 20 to 30 percent bandwidth for 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 athletes to say, you know what, I I really like this part of what I'm doing here. And you know, we used to we used to, you know, working with bobsledders and 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 football players over the years. I'll tell you this much is we needed to put a little uh, put some arms in there once in a while. Like it was just part of, for some of them, it was yeah. just part of how they felt confident and good about themselves. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. It's, it's a, you know, it's an education process and it's a rapport building process. And I think that, you know, I think what you're highlighting on there is that, you know, it can't, it can't all come down to, you know, science. And that's why I always say is this coach who's stealing from science to make things better not a yeah. scientist who's trying to become a coach. And uh, right. we know as coaches that you're connecting with people and you've got to be able to have like your conversation with your athlete. Hey, like I want to do a little bench press, you know what? All right, yeah, let's do it. Like, let's, let's do it. Let's make sure we still have the core things that you need in there. And yeah. let's make sure that you're bought into to why that stuff works. And let's, let's have a little bit of room for being able to negotiate. If that's going to help that athlete buy into you and and to feel good about it,
0: totally worth it. Oh, I used to be that trainer that was like, "I'm the, I'm the coach, I'm the trainer, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the plumber, right? Don't tell me how to do my job. I'm going to tell yeah. you what's best for you." And that has switched so much. I used to yeah. also, I couldn't stand listening to, to other trainers go, "Hey, what do you want to do today?" And one reason I didn't stand that is because I knew they didn't program anything. They just, they were just yeah. in their pants. But now I say that with a program in mind. But I want to know yeah. what you want to do today. what exercise is going to bring you yeah. happy. Give me a couple of them, and if it fits into the program even better, I can remove some of my stuff to put your stuff in i just yeah. I just want people to love what they're doing, and they know what they love yeah. more than they know what they love
1: yeah to- totally and you know listen like i I'll go back to knee injuries, which is where I spend the bulk of my time coaching these days and you know I I actually compare the process a little bit to, um, you know, like my, my, like, I, no, well, I'm going to, let me finish what I'm going to say here before okay. I, I end up getting myself into a hole here. I was going to say, I compared almost like a dog. Right. And I, I mean, I'm not saying my athletes are dogs, right, not I'm not dog. saying that yeah you know, but you know, dogs are like, you want your dog to be confident and moving forward and, and feeling that sense of like, you know, confidence. Right. And, and you know, a dog that's cowering and 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 you know, away and you know, like that's that's a, a totally different mindset. And we all can probably relate for those of us who are dog lovers to the confident dog and the dog who's scared of the world. And in a very similar way with athletes, is that especially with ACL injuries and coming back after you know big, big events like that, yeah. is you need to create that mindset of move forward, right? And and move forward means that we've got progression, we've got room to move. Like I always say, I'd rather, I I will estimate what a a workload will be, a tolerable workload for that, let's say injured joint, and I will subtract 10%. And we will stick at 10% less below that tissue threshold, even though they could go up to that tissue threshold, we'll stick at 10% below that. And we'll see that five, six, seven, eight, nine times before we start to move up and flirt through that tissue tolerance zone. And a lot of times the athletes will be like, you know, Matt, I think we can handle it a little more. And I'll be like, I know you can, but I want to keep you in this mindset of feeling good and moving forward. And because it's, it's, it's a critical man. piece of the puzzle. There's nothing worse than getting to that line, going past it. And then they show up the next day. I'm like, Hey, how are you doing today? And they're walking in they're like, oh, man, you know, my knees flared up and yeah. it's, it's swollen and it's a bit hot. And I, I don't know if I can train today and, Oh, no worries. Let's go to plan B. We'll, you know, get you in the pool. And we're, kind of regressing like again going back to that dog who's kind of cowering from the world is now we're in a now we're in a defeat mode and I think that that's a psychological piece of keeping people moving forward is that you're trying to manage that and you're trying and there's no better place where subjective feelings around how people are doing are critical and I would just say one more thing you can measure that and you can do it for free with a google form you can ask your athletes you know rate the workout how hard was it um, how long was it? What did you do? Give me your knee check score in the morning. How was your sleep? How's your wellness today? And you can actually keep a number to that. And I'll tell you this much is going back on a subjective piece of information that's provided by your athlete over time as a coach, when you sit back at the end of an injury or the end of a, an Olympic cycle, or the end of working with a young player who made a, made a college team and, and had the, the, you know, the, the tryout of his, of, of his life, when you can go back on that subjective information, it's just asking people how they feel. But you can actually see the flow in it. It is a very, very informative uh, marker for us as coaches, and I couldn't agree more. It's it's um it's so overlooked, and and I uh, I, I just know how important it is, um, especially when you're when you're battling back after a big injury. So
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. That challenge is for real. I want to ask you more questions, Matt, but I want to respect your time. And I also want to see if there are other people who have questions for you. So are you okay for a few more minutes, just to to your questions? All right, Greg, do we have any questions that are coming up in the chat?
1: Yeah, yeah, we do. Let me uh, get you a few here. Chris, coach Chris in the chat wants to know, in respect to daily slash weekly volume, how often do you change the program length of time or training session? i i usually start with um again i'm gonna start somewhere right and i think this is this is the reality is that you you need a heuristic or you need um some sort of process to begin with and so when i <clears throat> when i start programming i i always start with kind of a four week cycle in mind now as i mentioned before i'm not attached to that cycle if if, if an athlete is showing me that they're um able to continue on we often do that um but you know let's go back to the acl injured athlete right like that's that's you know i'm sure lots of you out there are working with injured athletes or injured clients or injured people that are trying to get back and they're relying on you one uh approach that i like is to have my first week be what i call the introduction week the introduction week is the introduction of the new stimulus which gives me a chance as a a coach to really evaluate how that person's responding to the load. And, and, and normally that introduction week, we're, we're aiming to have about, you know I would say 70% to 80% of the planned load for what that cycle would look like. The next week I call a build week, and I usually would increase the load, aim to do it by 15%-ish to 20%-ish. The build week is an increase in volume primarily, not in intensity. My third week is what I call a perform week where we're actually going to hit the intensity um, in the gym and we're going to aim to overload by intensity. And then the final week in that is a recovery week. Now I know that I said earlier that I would just sort of push through um, you know if athletes were still continually progressing on on uh, on, on a given uh, program but you know, again, we want to be proactive here. I make this mistake all the time as, as, you know, even my own programs, right? I kind of keep pushing until my body breaks. That's not mm-hmm. what we want to do. We want to have some strategy that allows us to, to be able to mitigate proactively, um, you know, for that scenario to, to mitigate the risks that could come along with an overuse injury or some sort of maladaptation to training. Um, and so that fourth week where we do a little bit of a reduction in, in, in training uh, load, I almost do it regardless of whether or not somebody's making progress. So I know that after intro, build, perform, recover, um, we need a little bit of a reset. Even if we plan to keep the same loading scheme in place for the next training block, um, I'll still kind of rip through those, those four weeks. The differences might be some athletes respond better to a three week block. Some are better on two. But that volume is um, is is or, or sorry that training load organization is kind of how I like to frame it out. And even within the week, uh, you know, some of your uh, listeners might have heard of this idea of fractal geometry. It's this idea that uh, across time scales, that lots of biological systems and organs have um, the same properties. So whether we go from like the macroscopic to the microscopic, there's a lot of self-similarity. And so within a week. I have a very similar loading scheme as I do to the to the to the overall mesocycle, which is allowing us to have a, a rhythm that the body can get into. And I think that's a nice way to sort of um, a starting point heuristic uh, that I'll use. And then from there, uh, begin to tweak and change as I get to know the athlete and know their nuance, because certainly you can't, you know, you, you can't apply the same methodology across the board without um, without some modification there for the person and their circumstance.
0: It's amazing. I think you have to have systems. There needs to be yeah. systems in advance, but you also have to have the insight. And you mentioned the word nuance. And I think that too often, we may not provide the nuance that's included. We'll either be strict, dogmatic by the system, or not yeah. follow the system at all. But you need to have a pre-planned idea what's going on. These are the general rules of of developing, and then you can look at an individual and you can shift based off of that. But that's you know, creating systems is is really one of the magical pieces of how to develop. Programs, and then you have to have the experience, the wisdom that goes along with it, and understand the nuance that that you can shift and create changes to that intro, build, perform, recover uh, program. Or and 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 that's one. That's one system that you utilize out of. I'm sure multiple, multiple systems. But you need to have a plan going into it. I, th- I thought that was brilliant. I thought that I think that's going to be um, a, a nice takeaway for not just the person who asked the question, but it's a good it's a good concept for those that are listening. Greg, do we have a, do we have a, other questions?
1: Yeah, Noah in the chat wants to know uh, when you're collecting the data from your athletes, like you talked about. How often are you comparing the the data that you're collecting to make uh, make decisions off of? Well, I mean, so to to frame this up, um, when we are in intense training periods, and and I I would say, you know, to make sure that we're we're cognizant of this is that anytime you're asking an athlete to do a test, it's actually a demand on them, right? So you need to, you need to remember, um, you know, there's going to be times where you kind of pull back a little bit from your monitoring to give that athlete space to not feel like they're having to constantly be evaluated. And, and, and I think that's an important caveat to the answer we're about to give, but when we're in intense training periods, I typically pull my data Monday morning. If we, if we have a rest day on Sunday, and I, and again, I'm not attached to the six days of training with a rest day on Sunday, but conventionally with the athletes we work with, typically it's, a, either a, a day off in the middle of the week, middle of the week and a day off at the end of the week or day off at the end of the week as, as being our primary rest day. I always use my Monday morning as my anchor point. And what I'm I'm trying to answer the question of is if I have a training, if I have a loading scheme that goes intro, build, perform, recover, I'm asking the question, is the athlete on Monday morning fitting according to what my expectations are for where they should be in my training cycle? And it's either, yes, all systems go, green light, follow plan as usual. Uh, B, the athlete's actually not showing a response to training because the training load is not enough. So I need to actually increase the, the load on them. Or C, the athlete has exceeded their adaptive potential, and we've I've actually made a training load error, and I've got to actually back off from what my plan is. So that Monday morning assessment is my time to actually challenge myself to answer the question, is the athlete adapting how I expected to the loads that I've 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 actually uh, uh, given out. So I've incurred what my plan was. And with that said, it's a Monday morning evaluation. And then I can use that information to guide. Am I on plan A? Continue as, uh, again, these are heuristics, right? Continue, no issue, all systems green. Um, we're seeing that we actually may be underestimating it a little bit here. And we need to sort of push a little bit more or see that we've pushed a little bit too hard. And very often, that third one is actually the most common one is you've overestimated what that person's adaptive potential is, and they're actually digging themselves into a hole that's not productive uh, at the end of the day. So that's, a, that's kind of our Monday morning uh, monitoring routine that we do. And I would say that when we're talking about more global measures of capacity, so here we're talking about strength, rate of force development, power, um, you know, asymmetries, and we're really using this to drive uh, as an outcome of training. We'll typically do that entry exit style, right? So you start at a baseline, you put them through a, a training program for four to six weeks, depending upon what your phase looks like, and we have an exit time point to to evaluate how those things have changed cycle to cycle. Um, but that Monday morning one is is you know it's a real big key for me. You know it's my anchor point. It's my chance to reconnect, um, challenge myself, and um, um, and and, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a key piece in my uh overall system to be able to uh help guide my guide my plan.
0: Nice. I have a question. Uh well first of all question is do you have do you have time Matt to to do a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah let's do it. Yeah Hundred percent so great let's go ahead and, and offer it back out to to people in the chat if there are more questions because I have questions. So let's see if uh I've been asking my questions. Let's see what they have.
1: Uh, We actually have gone through everything that we currently have in the
0: chat. So
1: if anything else comes up, I'll let you know, Rick. All
0: right, I have two two questions. One, you can be brief with this, as brief as you can be, but I've been seeing a lot recently, um, I mean the past few years, about really hard landings versus these soft kind of reduce and produce landings. Why, what would be the reason or rationale for these really hard landings and then um how does that relate back to what people are trying to get out of that what are the outcomes of that
1: yeah i mean i think i think the 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 short answer to the question is that when we land hard and we're creating stiffness um, that can be very important for performance right? So a stiff landing strategy can be important because stiffness is what allows me to tense up my connective tissue and my elastic tissue to be able to use that productively in a propulsive movement. Um, So you can have the need for a stiff landing in the sport to be able to create a performance outcome. The flip side is that when people lack muscular strength and they lack that eccentric rate of force development, they will often use a stiffened limb loading strategy because it's a way to dissipate energy without having to use muscles. So it's very counterintuitive that you might have somebody with an ACL injury who actually jumps off and lands with more force through the injured side. And that stiffened limb loading strategy is one that's meant to basically compensate for the fact that the muscles don't have the capacity to dissipate that energy. So a stiff limb, limb landing strategy in that, situation can be really problematic because what it's indicative of is that they are using their system rigidly to dissipate energy meaning that the muscles don't have capacity and when you have that the the, sorry intervention with the dog um when we don't have that capacity that can be a sign for that person that they might be at risk because when we start to have those really high impact force Stiff limb landing strategies, um, certainly that has been associated with these, with these injuries that we see that, that, that can be, you know, um, serious like ACL tears.
0: Yeah. I just think that one of the issues with hard landings is in in my perception, a hard landing stimulates muscle activity, right? Now, depending on, on what position you're in, that could certainly be, um, absorbed through the bones and through the joints. So we do want it to be a muscle absorption. Um, But you also have to have the elastic component that's there too, especially if you want to produce force. So you have to reduce it to produce it. And that goes back to the stretch shortening cycle or as we talk about NASM, the integrated performance paradigm where you have to have the core stability, the balance, the eccentric ability to decelerate before you can concentrically produce a force. And, And then I think also, through training and not that hard landings are wrong. You just need to, if it's for the purpose of developing that strength and that landing, it's important. But what you should also do is evaluate where we are in this continuum. Hard landing, can't jump as high, a little bit softer, jumping a little bit higher, too soft. I don't jump as high. And then and then start to evaluate where is that individual's best um Kind of range of motion and and touch in order to produce the greatest amount of force.
1: Yeah, no, I think I think that's that becomes especially important when we're dealing with you know sports where stretch, shorten, cycle activity and are 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 a key part of the sport, right? I mean, some of the sports that we work with, like let's say snowboarders, it's it's actually not a stretch, shorten, cycle. It's basically you know dissipating energy from a you know thirty yeah. foot drop off a jump where you literally just have to be able to absorb. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I mean, where, where my where my alarm bells go up a little bit is, you know, again, we'll see this very frequently in our strength lab. Uh, again, the drew, the, the, the grad student I referenced, um, you know, we'll see these athletes who come in who are just seriously, they are just not very strong. Right. So they mm-hmm. lack strength. And so they opt towards this stiff and limb landing strategy because they don't want to use the muscles. They want to just lock it out and put energy right through the system. And I, You know, I always shudder a little bit there because you know, on the other hand, you'll see the athletes who are strong and pre-activating muscles and able to um, use that stiffened strategy to really use it for performance. Um, And so, where I think you put it real well there is, it's like being able to understand what does this athlete need to do and why are they doing that? You know, like what is what's driving that? Is it a is it a is it a, a, a way to improve performance or is it something that they're doing because they're they're at a deficit in some other way?
0: Yeah. And I'll also say that if listening to a landing is really important because you can land hard and absorb forces, but if you land hard and you hear a smack going into the ground, then you probably didn't absorb those forces. You, you just landed and to be able to use a stretch shortening cycle, whether it's a hard landing or a soft landing, the sound of it should probably not be that hard or that loud because even in a hard landing, it's a very short, rapid absorption and production of force. And that force isn't going into the ground. It's being absorbed and pushed back up. So throwing that out there with, uh, with some comments. And then I have one other thing that I want you to touch on because, um, at Optima, the NASM conference, I have, um, I'm going to be doing something on mentorship and this is for personal trainers who are like, what's my next step in my evolution? Um, you know, do I want to open my own gym? Do I want to be, um, like a speaker? And can I speak in front of a bunch of people? And and I'm really trying to gear people to say, look, this is the speaking gig is, is enjoyable, but that's like a 60 minute gig. And I can do the same thing over and over again. Like, for you to really change lives um, and progress, you are either training or teaching other people, mentoring other people how to do their job better. And that's kind of an incredible impact. And so I'm speaking to that on uh, at Optima and and you mentioned having a mentorship program so please just speak to it for a moment you don't have to spend a lot of time on it but the value of it and what your students or proteges get out of it and then we can uh, wrap our conversation up
1: yeah i mean you know i i i think that you know you've got to you know it's like anything right you you've got to put your you got to lead with your heart and lead with the things that you care about in in uh, in life and i i believe uh, strongly in the in the role of acquiring knowledge and 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 giving mentorship and I also believe strongly in the idea that we need mentorship ourselves across our lifespan amen and and so that is a sort of a value I live I live by um, working with coaches you know I am trying to create a pathway to help um, coaches and trainers and personal trainers and sports scientists Trying to create a pathway to make this world a little bit easier when it comes to having to embrace data. It's it's everywhere, whether it's a wearable or whether it's a you know a force plate or whatever. It's overwhelming, and you hear this all the time. Like I don't even know where to start. And so at the end of the day, I think that that is something that you're not going to learn in a weekend course. It's a journey, and it's got to be a journey that fits your questions and it has to fit what you want in your in your in your in your growth. And so to that end um, you know the mentorship part is is an opportunity for me to give back in the way that mentors have given to me my mentors have given to me but yeah. to pass that on and um, i just think you know it's it's um it's uh it's good work right it's it, and by good work i mean it's it's rewarding work to be in that role but it's also rewarding to to be yourself in the process of being mentored and so i think you know to answer your question I think that you know the it's it's our duty as we grow to both be giving and sometimes be taking that 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 ourselves because that's how we stay current and relevant and and you know honest with ourselves and 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 we can we can pass that along. So it's great that you're doing that session. Um you know what I again it's it, online opportunities for mentorship I think are better than ever. Um, and, and certainly I look at it kind of in a threefold thing. Like there's what you, there's what you learn into the, in terms of the nuts and bolts of like the how to's, how do I write a program? How do I do run a test? There's, there's, um, you know, how do I fit it together? How do I train rate of force development? How do I do like, that's a lot of the time where our, our focus is, but mentorship is about, it's about, it's about your growth, right? So it's about your engagement in a process and. I think that's where my focus has been much more is helping coaches uh, on their journey, connect to what they care about and obviously using the tools and lo- using the how-tos, but ultimately you know, guiding them along a process of self-reflection and growth and, and being able to be that person that um, is there to help uh, be a mirror, to reflect back and to, and to give them that path. So um, I think it's a, some of the favorite things I do is, is around this space.
0: Um Matt Jordan thank you so much for your insights and your input in this conversation. I appreciate it. If people are looking to find you, to learn more from you, to follow you uh whether it's social, email, website, how do they how do they do so?
1: Yeah, uh so my website is uh jordanstrength.com. Um you know, I've got you can sign up for an email list. I've got uh you know, I do put out I try to I try to stick more to the quality than the the quantity. So, you know, I'll put out uh, blog posts every few months that are things that we're working on, um, you know, always kind of tied back to some of the innovations that that are that are coming up in my world. Mm-hmm. Um, but if your listeners want to join me there, then I will put them you know in in sort of the the list that I send out periodically. It's ah uh, uh, to let people know what's up and what's happening in terms of courses and and new things that are going on. You won't get to be email every week. I promise you that. It'll be you know a couple a few times a year. Um, And then my Twitter and Instagram handle is at Jordan strength. So, you know, Twitter and Instagram are places where I I tend to focus, you know, not on, you know, not what sort of workout I did in the morning, but trying to give you guys um, give the world uh, the innovations and some of the things that are happening and, and ways to think about the challenges that we touched on here today. So uh, please follow me there and um, yeah, I really look forward to making some connections and and uh, always love to hear from people. So write me, let me know how you're doing let me know where you need help. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm here to answer myself and and to give you to give you the best of me uh, in your journey towards becoming a better coach or trainer.
0: I love it. Well, I just followed you on Instagram. I can't believe I missed you. So just followed you on Instagram. Thank you so much, Matt Jordan, for being here with us. Thank you for everybody for listening to, um, to this conversation and being a part of it. My name is Rick Ritchie. Feel free to reach out to me at Instagram, dr.rickrichie or you can email me at rick.ritchie, R-I-C-H-E-Y at nasm.org. This has been the NASM CPT Podcast.